Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Kat Gardner, whose debut collection of short fiction, Little Wonder, is out now from Father Daughter Records. Born in Oklahoma, raised in the Pacific Northwest, and currently based in Detroit, Kat carries a restlessness through her writing that's been honed by a lifelong search for roots. She studied creative writing at Bennington College in Vermont, and later studied with Tom Spandauer in Portland, Oregon. Little Wonder springs from the year Kat spent in Anacortes, Washington during her early 20s. Young and idealistic, she opened a coffee shop and music venue with her husband in the hopes of finding a home in the city's artistic community. The experiment lasted exactly one year. Kat closed the coffee shop and moved away from Anacortes, ending a stressful and dreamlike chapter in her life. Kat and I have been friends since she moved to Detroit, and we're in a writing group together here. I appreciate in Little Wonder what I appreciate in Kat's critiques of my own work her ability to root emotion in the physical world of the story, her knack for zeroing in on the right details, and her sharp eye for mood. Little Wonder was born in part out of a desire to share the writing process. She began what would become the collection on Instagram, posting a snippet a day for 100 days. Here, we talk about letting in the light on works in progress, on sharing our drafts the way musicians share demos. We talk about how her writing has changed since becoming a mother, how she sees her creative work as a part of her parenting, and why failure is never failure. I want to be as honest with my work as I can. I want to be as um, close to the bone as I can. Um, I want to be as universal as I can, only in in the way that every specific moment of the human experience is universal. that you're here to talk about this book. Um, Kat and I are in a writing group together, and so this was already, though, baked and ready to go. We didn't really look at any of these stories, right? Yeah, we. Uh, by the time that I joined the writing group, I was in, like, the final stages of editing. I didn't want to open it up to a roundtable discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I really love the... I don't know. I, the, I It's, like, my favorite type of writing, which is just this, like, and I think the kind of writing that, like, of my own when I do it that I like the best is this sort of just, like, these little, like, mood portraits, and I think that you do that so beautifully in Thank here. You. Um, and I, I want, I guess let's just start, how did this, how did this come to be? So, this came about from, this is a story I've been wanting to write for a long time, and I didn't know how to write it. There were times when I tried to do it as a graphic novel and as, like, just one, like, novel. Um, but my husband and I, when I was 24 years old, and he was 29, we... So we got married, like, three months after we started dating. Um, and three months after that, we decided that we were going to move away from Seattle, the city, and go to the country, to the small town that we knew about, that we knew it had an amazing artistic community. And we were going to open up a cafe and an all-ages music venue in the back of this record store that um, a really amazing record label came out of. And all these musicians that, like, like Phil Elvrum from Mount Erie came from there. And Carl Blau and Little Wings was discovered there. And um, Mira was connected to this scene. And The Blow and all of these, like... I mean, people that we were just in awe of and we were like, oh, that's the tip of the iceberg. There must be this flourishing artistic community there that, like, isn't famous. 
And so kind of like just harebrained idea. We saw an ad in Craigslist to open up a cafe, no money down. And we're like, let's do this. And it lasted a year. And it was by all accounts, a huge failure. Um, But you know, failure is not failure. Failure is how we learn and how we grow. And being 24 with all my friends, like either living in a city and doing the city life or going to MFA programs, um, it was a different learning experience than any of my peers had. Um, so I'd wanted to tell the, tell the story for a really long time. Um, because too, you know, like running a cafe, specifically food service is so time intensive. And then you add an, a venue aspect on top of that. So like, yeah, it's, it reads like you guys never left this place. We did not leave that place. We had, um, so we had weekends. Um, one of us, would have either the morning or the afternoon off. And there was another barista who would come in and we paid them with the tips that we made throughout the week. Um, and I think throughout the year we had two days off. Um, one of which you write about. One, about, one of which yeah. I write about. Um, and the, like, yeah, it was just nonstop. And it was really emotional the whole time. Um, so, yeah. So fast forward 10 years later. Um, I've just had a child. Um, I had been before having the child, I had been working on a novel, which I'd been working on since I actually lived in that town that I, that I had, um, spent a lot of time on. I have, um, you know, like a thousand pages of a rough draft, but, um, I, and I'd been studying with Tom Spanbauer in a basement in Portland with a big writing group that, um, studied a specific style of writing called dangerous writing. I learned a lot from, but I had to, um, I had to step away when I was about to give birth. And as I was stepping away, Tom, he, he's been living with, um, AIDS since the eighties. Um, he got to a point in his illness where he had to take a break. He's in, I, he's older now. I'm not exactly sure how old, but, um, he had to take a break. So I had this kid and my writing group was gone. And I also didn't have the mental capacity to go back to this giant novel. Um, so I was trying to figure out how I could keep on writing, how I wouldn't lose that part of myself. There's so much about being a mother. There's pressure. There's still so much pressure to let go of yourself and to give all of your energy to your family at that point. And kind of abandoned who you've been before. And I just wasn't willing to do that. Um, especially for my kid, you know, like I didn't want her to see that as a woman, you spend your life focusing and driving towards something and then you get pregnant and then that's the end. Like, it, like I was very, and I was, you know, emotional about that. Um, so I decided in, you know, I went to an artistic, um, college, I went to Bennington where there were a lot of, you know, like different ways of doing things. And I remember that there was a um, painting class that I wasn't a part of, but a lot of my friends were, where you had to do a painting every day. And there were prompts of like what the painting would be. Um, And so I was like, I wonder if there's a writing prompt thing. And I couldn't find anything. No one knew of anything. Um, So I decided, um, I was like, well, I'm just, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to post it every day on Instagram Um, and on, I think I did Twitter too, um, which 
from my experience, was like a huge no-no in the literary world because you're supposed to, you know, write these perfect pieces, get them in literary journals. They can't be published beforehand to get published in a lot of places. So people don't really share their work. And um, that was something that I um, have a hard time with in the literary world because, like, I most of my community are, like, independent musicians, and they can just put a demo out. Mm-hmm. They can show you what they're working on, and it's not like they're um, they're ruining it. Um, and I, you know, I spent ten years with all with my entire community, pretty much never knowing what my writing sounded like because I'd be like, "Oh, I'm working on this big novel," and they're like, "Oh, I'd love to read it," and I was like, "You can't." I yes, yes. I have that that hits me really close to home for sure. And it's it's so difficult because you want to be like, no, I'm like like you you want to share. So this whole like posting on Instagram thing was really like a fuck you fear. Right. Like right. fuck you what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I want to share what I'm working on. I don't have my writing group anymore. I um don't have time to go, you know, like and I was just like I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to put it out there. And so I was thinking about what I was going to write these stories on. I knew I wanted to do a really short because it would be, um, I studied microfiction in college that like I had written a collection of short, short stories about a summer that I spent in a really weird small town. And, um, I was brainstorming about what I wanted to do. And I was like, oh, I should focus on Anacortis. That's like finite. Mm -hmm. There are so many memories that I want to like go into there's so many like internal emotional mysteries I want to delve into because things turned sour and I still don't really know why um but I wanted to get closer to it through writing and um I knew I wanted it to be fiction because I write fiction I have a really bad memory and I have a really big imagination and that combination just doesn't work with nonfiction very well (laughs) um but yeah, so I knew my theme and I knew what I was going to do. And originally it was not going to be anything that I was ever going to put out. It was just like an exercise in getting over fear. Um, and so I did it and I did it every day for a hundred days straight, usually at about like two or three in the morning or, you know, in the in-between times. And the, um, the litmus test of how short it had to be is I'd write it in Google documents and it had to be small enough that it would fit on one screen of mm-hmm. a snapshot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that re- like those two elements really focused it in theme. And um, after I was done with 100 days, I was kind of like going back to like, okay, what next? Do I want to try to get into an MFA program? I, ju- I just moved to Detroit, which is close to U of M, which is a great, great MFA program. And or, or do I need to get back into my novel? Like, where do I go? Um, and I actually, I um, called a good friend of mine who um, reads tarot. And I was like, I need some help. And so she did a spread for me and we were talking and she was like, maybe like you do your own thing. That's what you're good at. Maybe you should publish that collection. And I was like, yeah, maybe like, maybe that's a good idea. And I just kind of put that out into my universe and, you know, talked to my husband about it. Um, So my husband was talking to Jesse Frick, who runs Father Daughter Records and they're um, an amazing human. They've worked together. They run a um, record label that I really appreciate and signs a lot of great artists. Um, and they were talking about how they wanted to release more books. And um, Nathan, my husband, just kind of threw it out there like, oh, my wife, um, that collection, she's thinking of um, 
of self-publishing it. And Jesse was like, have her talk to me. This sounds right up Father Daughter's Alley. Um, and so I did. And they were like, okay, let's, um, let's maybe do this. And I was like, oh, okay. I have a focus. I have a thing. I have a team. And so I spent the next three months or so going over the stories, reordering them, editing them, adding stories that I felt like were missing from the original draft, taking stories that I felt at were a little bit not right and making it into this collection. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell how this book came to be. There are so many things I want to tease out in everything that you just said, but I want to start um, <laughs> because my novel happened the same way that I didn't mean to be doing anything. I, mm-hmm. It was an exercise and it was the very same thing. I was afraid. I was creative. I was tremendously dissatisfied creatively with everything I was working on. So it was just like, okay, hundred words a day. And it's funny that we both went to the hundred place, but like, yeah, yeah that's great. Um, and, and then eventually, you know, I think I had like 10,000 words and I was like, probably you have the beginning of a novel. So, yeah. that, and that's what I, that, and that's where I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing now. That's and awesome. Thank you. You're, that's awesome for you too. And I think it's such a great, um, I love what, you know, Kat and I, uh, everybody listening have just this morning went to uh, creative mornings, which is a really great program. Um, and they have, uh, chapters in a bunch of cities and they do these kind of morning lectures and networking things. And, uh, an, another writing group friend, uh, Patricia Wheeler, who's an amazing, I was, I was totally, <laughs> she's <laughs> an amazing totally storyteller. Yeah. She runs the moth here in Michigan. Um, and she gave this, she gave this lecture about chaos and creativity and controlling chaos to, um, to, to meet your creative goals. And this is basically exactly what she's saying, which is mm-hmm. to put everything in manageable chunks, identify your chaos, which you were like, okay, Smokey <laughs> is going to wake up. I'm, she's going to start screaming and be hungry. I'm going to need to deal with that. Yeah. And you just adapt. And then, you know, cause it's, it's going to come out, right? I yeah. mean, hopefully if, if it doesn't come out, you, it comes out in, you get more depressed and yeah. down and, you know, And the thing is, like, if you're a creative person, and I think that this goes beyond, like, one one genre of creativity, if you're not expressing that, if you're not getting it out of your body, you get really depressed, and you get really unhealthy. And I'm not saying, like, I mean, there's a physical aspect of that, but there's also the mental aspect. Like, I know the times when I'm not being creative and bringing something into the world, I become a worse human being, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, yeah, that lecture today, the thing that really struck me about it was like this. So she, she suggested this routine of like throughout a month, giving yourself a time, like a specific time to focus on the chaos and focus on the creativity. And it was like, yes, mm-hmm. this is like, it sounded so good. It like, yeah, it blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Patty is great. Everybody go, go sign up for creative mornings in your city. Yeah. Cause they're really great too. And their newsletter is great and a uh, good, good supportive community. But yeah. Um, so were you, were you doing any type of journaling or anything while you were in Anacortes? I mean, it sounds like you had no time. Yeah, I had no time. I wrote, there's actually a story in the book um, about, there are two stories where I deal with where I was at with the creative process. Because originally the idea was we would open up this cafe so that we could write. Mm. <laughs> Looking back on it now, foolish thinking. 
Um, but our thought was like, oh, once we get it going, we'll be able to hire people. We'll work like 15 hours a week and we can spend the rest of the time working on our creativity in this flourishing creative community in a beautiful area of the country. And, um, it does sound very dreamy. It sounds so dreamy. And like Nathan had been working in coffee shops at that point for like 10 years. He started in, he was working at Cafe Ladro in Seattle for a long time, which it's huge. And he was working in a big one in um, Grand Rapids and in Saginaw, whose names are completely spacing me. But I mean, he had experience working in big coffee shops where like, once you get it going, you as the owner don't have to do the day to day. And I think looking back on it, if we had really wanted to make that coffee shop our life, and to make Anacortis our life, we could have moved locations, we could have kept it going, um, we could have waited the five years it would take to get to that place, but I think in in being in that situation, we realized that this town that we had idolized wasn't idyllic for us, and it was, um, it, it's funny, like, I'm kind of shifting gears, but not really in saying that, like, I've never had roots um, and I, w- I've always wanted to make roots and find it very, it's a very big challenge for myself. Um, I, you know, I make the joke that I'm, I come from a long line of wandering Jews and it's true. Um, but like, for example, or my, both of my parents, for whatever reason, I love them both dearly, no offense, but they moved to Oklahoma for my dad's the professor for a professorship, mm-hmm. a professor job. Um, and they changed their name. They changed their religion. I grew up knowing none of my relatives. Mm. I grew up knowing nothing about Judaism. I was raised Episcopalian. I was an acolyte. Um, even now, as I've reconnected with my family on my dad's side and starting to on my mom's side, and they're all lovely people, you know, like everyone's flawed. There are flaws. Sure. I'm not saying that my parents didn't have a reason for doing what they did, Um, we're all doing the best we can with where we are at in life and I don't hold them at fault at all. But, um, I look, I look at that, you know, my family with this big root system that I've been, um, transplanted from. And I think that we were trying to put roots in this town and we got there and we realized that a, we weren't the only people who had tried to put roots down in this town and the people who were there who had the roots, um, weren't necessarily looking for applications. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, you know, going back to the mystery of like, I don't know why it didn't work, but it didn't work. And, um, it was heartbreaking because we both wanted it to so bad. And we had made these connections and these friendships with people who we really loved. And ultimately not with everyone. There were definitely people who wanted us to stay forever, but there were also people who were like, this isn't your home. Mm -hmm. Like this will never be your hometown. And that was heartbreaking. I mean, like, it stayed with me for so long. And in a lot of ways, this book has been, like, a catharsis of being, like, this is my story of that experience. I have no idea what your story is. Mm -hmm. All the people, like, everyone who was there during this time, instead of read the book, and they're going to see, they're going to see my story in it. Yeah. And even though it's fictionalized... You know, it's from something that's much closer than what I usually write about. You know, like, the novel I'm working at is definitely not mm-hmm. based 
on as like specific events as this is. There are aspects of mm-hmm. people and things, but um, the the collection of microfiction that I'm working on now definitely draws on a lot of things in my life. But it's by no, like there is no this happened things. Yeah. Um, this is very much this happened. And it's such a hard thing to um, to process when things don't go the way that you expect them to, or you've got a plan and it gets kind of upended. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, at whatever point you get to this creativity, if you're a creative person, mm-hmm. it's such an important part of processing it. Oh, yeah. I don't understand things fully until I've written about them and then reread it. Yes. And then be like... Oh, that's how I feel. Yeah, you know, I've had that. Ex- I've had that experience so many times of writing writing a sentence and being like, "Oh, I mean that." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like going through the process of revising, and I do this thing, and I learned this from Tom Spanbauer of like one of his kind of lessons that has really like sunk into me is that the story is where you're at. Mm. And I go back to it again and again, because I have this tendency to do big brush strokes Mm -hmm. and just like focusing it and Mm. focusing it on the light and the smells and the sounds and the person. Now your notes on all of our drafts make a lot more sense. sense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like in those details, a, as a reader, you get drawn in. It's like a hypnosis of like, almost like an other, other body, a Mm. bodily experience. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in the specificity of that, I'll read it back and I'll be like, oh, this is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. This, like why I focused on this one thing that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's a way that I can really process things that have gone on in my life in a way that, um, I can't in other ways. Yeah. Can you, while you brought Tom back up, talk about dangerous writing and what the concept of that is? Yeah. Um, I don't know where the term dangerous writing came from, um, but it, there, it's kind of like there's similarity between that and Dogma 95, if you're a film nerd, um, where Tom has developed a method of writing that really works to get to the like bone mm-hmm. of the matter. And there are all of these different rules that he's come up with um, that really do work in making really good stories. Um, I'm not a rules person in mm-hmm. general. Um, it was hard for me to accept this dogma. In, in the class um, slash writing group, there are some drafts that I made that are perfect for that environment. But reading back, I'm like, they're not me as much as other things. Um, but the lessons I learned from that um, have really shaped me as a writer in a very positive way. And um, I highly suggest if you are... Um, interested, he's, I mean, he taught Chuck Palahniuk, he taught um, Cheryl Strayed and Lydia Yuknovich, mm-hmm. um, but she talks about the writing group that I was in um, before my time, like yeah. I was never in the group with her, um, in the Chronicles of Water, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, one, of the, one of the things with Tom's work and his method of teaching is um, there, there's a universality of it. You know, being in a writing group, you take on each other's styles, but with him, it was more about finding your own style and your own voice using these methods. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of musicality in Mm -hmm. it, and going back to choruses and themes 
and bringing the language of um, kind of the Greek chorus thought, but the idea that the story is a symphony. Mm. Um, and you never lose the storyline, yeah. but you bring in other elements. Um, there is a concept called burnt tongue, which is a way of saying something but saying it wrong and twisting it to slow down the reader, which is another thing that I still use in my work a lot. And a lot of it is like, you know, we we write, we we talk and we in physical life um, using cliches and um, words and phrases that have been used a lot by other people. Um, and one thing that he really stressed was like taking what you're saying there and twisting it mm. and making it your own and saying what you mean through it. He was also um, a big uh, proponent of not using analogies, mm-hmm. but saying saying the thing, the thing. instead mm-hmm. of saying the thing is like the thing, mm-hmm. um, which is another thing that I used to do quite a lot. I think because it's so... Um... Yeah, because metaphors are so much fun for me, and coming yeah. up with them are so much fun. And then you're just like, I know, I'll put four in one sentence, and it's like... <laughs> and, like, no shame on metaphors. I'm using them yeah, a lot more no, than I sure. used to. But, but, you know, like, it was, a, it was a challenge while I was working to be like, strip down that metaphor, say what you're saying. Yeah. Um, recording Angel was another um, method, which I'm just reading this from the an interview that Chuck Palahniuk did with um, Tom... Uh, it means writing without passing any judgments. Oh, girl. Yeah, yeah. I need that one. Mm-hmm. And don't don't just feed something to the reader, but describe actions and appearances in a way that makes the judgment occur in the right reader's mind. This is such this is such an interesting concept to me because so much of my like all of my writing education almost is in journalism. Mm-hmm. And that switch from 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 giving all of the facts and and yeah. packaging the story to um, writing something that is an invitation to the reader and more of a relationship yeah. that's been a big shift for me. Yeah. Uh, oh, another big thing that he was super into is going on the body. Okay. And I um, personally, and I I don't know if this is a masculine feminine thing. Like he would go into great detail on like what a person looked like and also like the feeling and all that kind of stuff. I'm not as much of a visual um, person mm-hmm. when it deals with interpersonal relationships, but I, um, the way that I internalized this rule was like, would kind of go in my mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. And I spend a lot of time in my writing talking about the physical feelings that emotions bring up mm-hmm. in me mm-hmm. um, or like being in a room and how it feels on the skin Um or, you know, like, the light in the room and these kind of things. And the importance of, like, going on the body when it's touch-related yeah. is very important to me in my writing. Um, but it's, uh, um, the sensations are a really visceral way, I feel like, to bring a reader into the body of your work. Um, oh, by the way, um, there's a great article on Tom. Um, it was in The Believer. Chuck Palahniuk interviewed him. It's it's a great it's a great um, summary. It be, way does a way better job than I could ever do. I honestly kind of stumbled into this group. I had heard tell of it, mm-hmm. um, but I had a hairdresser who was in the group and who told me about it, and I was like, "That sounds really really interesting." Mm-hmm. And then I ended up, I think, bugging um, Tom's partner enough nice. so that he let me come in. Hey, it's Courtney. If you get as much out of listening to WMFA as I do out of producing it, and I hope that you do then I have a favor to ask. 
would you consider becoming a patron? Think of this like those fundraising drives they do on NPR, only with less Ira Glass. Okay, with no Ira Glass. Patreon is a digital platform that allows listeners to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount, and in return, I give you thank you gifts like shoutouts, transcripts, and bonus segments. Choose from my pledge tiers or donate a custom amount that works for you. All of you who do the freelance hustle will hear me when I say that literally every dollar counts. Platforms like Patreon are so important for independent creatives like me and for growing shows like WMFA. By helping me continue to make WMFA, you're not only supporting a passion project, you're also supporting a mini economy of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. Your money goes directly to the people behind the show. It's kind of like shopping at the farmer's market for your ears. To pledge, visit www.patreon.com backslash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash WMFA podcast. And thanks so much. I truly appreciate it. I have to check out the dangerous writing thing because that sounds very um, necessary. And I like, you know, what you were saying about the physicality. Um, That's the way that I prefer... I think as a as a writer and as a reader, I never like to be told people's appearances, characters' mm-hmm. appearances. Like, I like to imagine them for myself. Yeah, and that's something as a reader that I, like, I, I definitely did it while I was in the class. I explored that fully. Um, I have gone back now, and I realize that when I'm reading something, like, sure, I want upfront, right. but then I want it to kind of fade into the background, because usually when I'm reading... I will um, imagine whoever I'm going to imagine. Right. And then when it comes back and the physical appearances are brought back, I'm like, oh, I always imagine them as being a blonde and they're, you know, brunette. Um, and so I like leaving that to the reader a little bit more as I've gotten into it. I do really like um, and I, uh, giving, like, a lot of details about their appearance, not so much physically, mm-hmm. but, like, how they present themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find that to be really... Um, I really like that. I also like giving them props. I love mm-hmm. giving my characters props um, that, you know, signal something about their personality right. and their character. Um, but I like I, I love having physical objects that they can be with, that the, that the reader can focus on um, almost as a proxy for what their nose looks like, right. if that makes sense. Right. Um, another thing that he's really got me sold on was first person versus third person. Mm. Um, and I... Um, I continue doing that in my work where most of my writings are first person. Um, and I think the reason for that is there's an intimacy mm-hmm. that you really get when you're writing in first person that you lose in third person with third person. You're so much of the observer of things that are happening to other people. And when you're writing and reading first person, you're actually asking the reader to be you mm-hmm. to see things from eyes. And by you, I mean like general you yeah, yeah. of the character that you're writing from. Um, that I really appreciate. Um, I've been doing, um, also, you know, my novel is in kind of close third and it alternates, but for characters, especially the ones that I have a harder time, uh, getting to know, I will draft stuff in first person to just kind of learn things. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, um, and I got a really great tip from, uh, Kayla Ray Whitaker, who I've now mentioned several times, because I mentioned her in the Fear Mini episode as well, but she was just the workshop leader at uh, the Appalachian Writers Workshop group that I was in this year. And uh, and she was like, you know, the, the characters that are hard for you or that you're, like, having trouble getting to know, um, make them drunk, make them sick, like, mm. make them vulnerable. 
That's really so smart. So you just I like learn that. how they how they kind of operate. How they crack in yeah. those situations. Yeah, that's great. And I so like, like that. I had a drunk scene, and I was like, oh, good. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Yeah, I'm. Um, it's funny. I'm going back to my um, my big novel pretty yeah. soon. I've so I gave myself foolishly maybe maybe brilliantly who knows how it'll play out um the reason i'm doing another round of microfiction is um the day that my book was announced i was like i'm gonna write another story a day until it's released and then the release date just kept on pushing so i'm writing like these new series which i'm i'm happy about and i'm i'm excited to see how it goes but it's put off that big novel um and i'm gonna get back into it as soon as i'm um i'm done with this kind of like project. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a couple of characters that now years later, as I'm going back to, I'm kind of having to reevaluate, you know, the biggest one being the mother of my protagonist. And they have a very adversarial relationship, Mm -hmm. um, because of, you know, like no fault of the, the mothers, but the story is told by, from the daughter's point of view. And she doesn't know why her mother doesn't like her because that's really what it boils down to. Her mother loves her, but doesn't like her. And, you know, I'm not spoiling anything. I hope it's going to be years before this book sees the light of day. So if you're planning on reading this book, you can fast forward, (laughs) but, um, she's the child of rape. Uh And, um, as she gets older, she starts taking on a lot of the physical attributes and personality attributes of the person who mm-hmm. raped her mother. Mm-hmm. And so her mother, who was young mm-hmm. when she had her, you know, like in high school kind of age, um, and never got a chance to fully grow up because she was a mother so mm-hmm. young, has a real hard time emotionally divorcing that internal layer of revulsion when she sees these elements of her daughter come out. But the story is told by the daughter's point of view. And the draft I have now um, lacks an amount, lacks a certain amount of depth in the mother. And I acknowledge it and I see it. And now being a mother, Mm -hmm. it's, I read it and I'm like, I need to, I need to address this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I'm going to address it yet. Um, But yeah, writing process, you know? Yeah. It's big and hard and you just, I don't know, you have to take it. Let's talk a little bit about writing and motherhood because I know, um, this is something that a listener emailed and mentioned wanting to talk about is, is how to balance that and how to um, kind of keep your creative energy up. And I know the, the yeah. microfiction is a really ingenious way for you to have mm-hmm. gotten in, but like how, you know, now, and especially now that you're getting back yeah. to the novel, um, how are you balancing that with motherhood? I mean, I think the most important thing is to remember that you can do it. And to give yourself permission, to give yourself time to do it, to, um, to like it, there is no time in the day to do anything. Um, but you can carve out that time. Like if it's important to you, you need to carve out that time. You need to do it for your child. Um, which is something that like is a mantra that you have to tell yourself. You need to do it for the relationship that you're in with your partner who's, raising the child, if you have a relationship with a partner while you're raising the child, you owe it to all of the people in your family, in your life to pursue your creativity, because not only are you leading by example every day, but, um, it's for mental health. Um, it's hard 
You have to, you know, the dishes might get sacrificed. Your house might be a little bit dirtier. Your clothes might not be organized, but that is not as important as your mental health. It's not as important as your creativity and your creative life. Um, I think that especially in early stages of motherhood, you need to be nice to yourself as far as self-critiquing goes because you're learning how to do something, mothering, that there is no guidebook to. You're doing the best you can. And your mental energies are focused on that in a way that in the past was distraction-free from your creative life. And I think that um, ultimately it adds depth because you are learning a different life path Mm -hmm. um, that you hadn't been exposed to before. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the big thing is just not giving up and remembering that time passes and there will be a point where you're not overwhelmed by motherhood. Um, One thing that was really inspirational to me a couple months ago, Lydia Davis, who's a personal hero of mine, Mm -hmm. um, came to talk at U of of M. And I went to two of the three days when she did writing or did readings and um, totally embarrassed myself in front of her. (laughs) But that's another story. Um, I but she was talking about how she was like she was on the track to being a published author um, like publishing a book. She had short stories out um, when she had her first kid. But I was like, oh, holy shit. She hadn't the succeeded before motherhood. And I think there's this insane pressure. And I talk to a lot of friends I have who, like, want to have kids. And they're like, but I'm not ready because I'm not where I want to be yet. Mm-hmm. And, like, A, you're never going to be where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the 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 movement towards the said goal is more important than um, the arrival there. You know, I don't, I don't remember who said this, but I just heard it really recently from a writer. Um, maybe you can remember, because I think it might have been yesterday, but the idea of home being a horizon. Mm. And, oh, that was Sharice. Yeah, that was Sharice. And it really stuck with me, um, because... Like, that's that's totally how Absolutely. I feel. And we're all going towards this home. We're all going towards this, like, goal. And the goal keeps on moving. And that's how, okay, that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. If you, like, what happens if you, you know, like, what happens if you catch your tail? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. then you then that's this whole, whole other, you know, chaos. Um, I, I really, like, I really glommed onto that. And it's really stuck with me. Um... But with motherhood, like, you're, you just have to, you have to respect yourself and you have to give yourself time. And it's hard, you know, like I'm going, going on a book tour this November for two whole weeks. I'm going to be away from a kid I have not spent a night away from yet. She's Mm -hmm. two and a half. And it's going to be hard on her. It's going to be hard on my husband. It's going to, like, I am asking a lot of them. Um, and they're giving me a lot and they're supporting me a lot, which I am in awe of and so thankful for, but I think it's important enough. I think I'm important enough. I think that, you know, I've been writing since I've been nine. It's always been what I wanted to do. It's always been what I have to do. And if I don't do it, if I don't give it, then it's going to be something that weighs on my psyche and it's going to affect both of them in a negative way. You know, I don't know what my daughter is going to want to do right now. She's really into trucks and Play-Doh and the color pink. 
and it's it's cool. She's fascinating lo- combo. She she yeah. loves people. She loves getting messy. She does not want me to put her hair back. She looks like a little surfer girl or boy or you know the androgyny of um, of toddler dumb. And I don't like I don't know if she's going to want to be creative or if she is creative. I don't know if she's going to pursue similar paths to me or my husband. But I do want her to see that it's important to pursue whichever path draws her. And if I, at this moment, like if I, if I tell her my life story in 10, 20, 30 years, and it was, there was a trajectory and then you were born and then you became the most important thing in my life and everything else dropped off. That's not what I want. That's not what I want for her. You know, I don't want her to feel like if she doesn't have a child, her life isn't fulfilled. Um, And there's a lot of that in our culture. And it's bullshit. You know, like, having a child is something that is a great thing to do, but it's also great not to. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. both are completely wonderful choices to make. I just read uh, Motherhood by Sheila Hetty, who I just, I love her. I know she's, like, I think, like, she's one of those authors who can, like, really rub some people the wrong way. But, like, I always just kind of feel like she's inside my head. Um, And she talks a lot about that, that idea of, like, um, you know, we're told... Uh, that you can't, it's like they, you can't trust yourself, you know, or like Mm -hmm. if you're a woman who doesn't want kids, you're told, um, well, you'll change your mind. Yeah. Wait and see, you know, this and that. And like, um, and then as you say, when, when you do have a child, uh, you're supposed to, you know, that's your existence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I got really, I'm a little bit antisocial. I, I don't say that I'm picky. I'm picky Mm -hmm. with the people I want to spend my time with. I love, people, some people. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, like immediately after I got pregnant, like on a hair, people came out of the woodwork who would never have talked to me before mm. and wanted me to be their best friend and wanted me to join these groups. And for some people that works, mm-hmm. no shame. Like mm-hmm. everyone does their own thing. But for me, it was like Stepford wivy mm-hmm. And I like, and still like, there's this pressure of like, Oh, your social life should now center around your child and other people who bore fruit at the same time as you. And, like, yeah, it's convenient for sure. Like, if I met someone as cool as you, for example, who had a kid Smokey's age, that would be awesome. But it's not, like, a prerequisite right. for friendship. If anything, it's a... um Yeah, it's just like an added bonus. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's definitely a lot of pressure in our society. And I think part of it is that motherhood is very isolating. Mm -hmm. And so people don't want to be isolated, which is fair. And, like, humans are tribal. I get it. Um, But for me, it was very, like, we have nothing in common. Why do you want to be my friend? I don't want to tell you, like, my deepest, darkest secrets. You do not like who I am as a human Except that, that's cool. We were living just fine before. I'm okay with people not liking me. Um, I'm way more weirded out when people who don't like me all of a sudden like me because I am fertile and have a child. Like, no, I'm not into it. (laughs) Does Smokey have any concept of what you do? Um, she knows I work on the computer and she's not happy about it. (laughs) Like, especially as she's been getting older. Um, and both me and my husband work from home, but I generally like, so I have like 15, I I work freelance doing email coding as a method of being a writer. 
Um, because I'm, and so I'm on call 40 hours a week, but I only really work probably 15 to 20, depending on, you know, like sometimes I'll have a 40 hour week, but that's so rare. Um, I'm just available for these clients. And so sometimes while I'm hanging out with Smokey, I also have to, you know, do a job and she is not a fan of this now. She sees my computer and she's decided that she just wants to watch YouTube on my computer whenever I need to work pretty much, which I get. She wants all my attention. I love her. I would love to spend all of my time with her and attention giving, like, that would be amazing. But there are realities in life. Um, she's never seen me read. Um, like give a reading. Like give a reading, yeah. Um, so I don't know if she understands that that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure she just thinks that both me and my husband are just, like, on like stare at a computer all day. Cause right. in essence, those are yes. the movements that we yeah. end up doing most of the time. Yeah. I like the way you put it. Uh, when you describe the email coding that that's, uh, your method of being a writer. I like that expression. of it. <laughs> Thank you. I, um, it's funny. So my husband is, um, he runs a PR firm mostly with independent musicians or music related books and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's a great company, Riot Act Media. If that is what you need in your life, check it out. They do amazing work. But um, oftentimes, clients of his will, um, you know, and I see this in all kinds of art forms. There's the business and there's the art. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point in your career, you have to choose which direction, which road you're going to go on. Mm-hmm. Are, do, you want your, do you want your music? Do you want your writing? Do you want your painting to be a business? Because these are the, the these are the things, the commodities you'll need to focus on mm-hmm. to make it a business. And whether that's making a different sound, changing your writing to appeal to, you know, like a certain literary genre, um, and no shame. Like, that is a completely good choice for some people. And for other people, do you want it to be an art? Do you want to just make good, as good of art as you can? Well, then you have to, like accept the fact that that might not be what's the most monetarily beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think with every artist at some point as you're going down the road and many times during, you know, it's like a branching tree that every decision you make is like, are you going to go for, are you going to go for the business branding or are you going to go for making art? Mm-hmm. Both legit, mm-hmm. but um, you kind of have to like own it mm-hmm. because if you don't, you won't find happiness. And so I was a music journalist originally when I first like, got out of college, um, and I was writing reviews and that was great. And then I, um, but I start like when I first started, I wasn't as, um, cognizant of feelings and, um, I had the most fun writing negative reviews. Mm. And at a certain point I was like, I don't want to bring negativity in the world. Like it's funny. Sure. But like, these are people making their art and I'm shitting on it. And So I was like, okay, I won't write negative reviews. And so I was just writing, you know, like about the people that I loved. And then I realized that all of these reviews were turning more and more into fictional stories, Mm. which was fun. I was writing for tiny mixtapes at the time, Mm. doing news. And, um, I like Marvin, who's the editor there, gave me a lot of freedom to do that. But at a certain point, and this is after the cafe closed when we were living on a tiny Island called Guamus at a certain point, I was like, I want to write fiction. Like, this is what I want to write. Mm -hmm. I don't want to write reviews. I don't want to write journalism. I don't want to write news. Um, And so then you're, you know, like, are you going to do literary fiction? Mm -hmm. Are you going to do genre? And 
I, that was probably the point where I made the decision. I don't want to think about the business yeah. because it was just stagnating my work. I want to write the best thing I know how to write. I'm going to let professionals think about that. People who want to think about that. Um, and so I decided that I'm not going to ask my writing to make me money mm-hmm. until and unless it happens. Yeah. And like, I'm not going to avoid it making money, right. but I'm not going to cater my writing to find, you know, like Harper Collins at my door or yeah. to please an MFA program or to please a genre. Um, I'm just going to make the best art I can. Yeah. And so that was the route that I chose and, but I'm not independently wealthy. Like I don't have enough money to just like make art. (laughs) But, um, so I was like, okay. And I started doing photo editing. Um, cause I had a background in photography, but all of the, like, funnily, like with, if, with, with writing, I went to art with photography, I went to business and I, um, I had grown, um, out of when I was at school, I was a photography minor and I did film and I did a lot of like, I would say, um, experimental documentary style. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I knew how to use Photoshop. I knew how to do all that kind of stuff. So that led me to working in photo in like photography, which led me to film and behind state or behind door stuff. And when I was working at a film company in Portland, um, I picked up some side work doing HTML coding. I just learned how to do it. And now it's gotten to a point where like I have a couple really amazing clients who I love and I'm um, like when they need me, I'm there and I get my work done and I have no, I do not take the baggage home and it's a wonderful situation. I mean, like I'd love healthcare. I'd love, you know, all that kind of stuff. But like I've thought about, you know, you work in an ad agency, you work in, um, you work for someone else, then they want your time. Right. And I, um, I really value my freedom of time. Um, and what this, what this lent me before I had a kid was I could work on writing for 30 hours a week. Yeah. Um, I didn't always, <laughs> sure. it was hard, yeah. but, and now I can mother and write and, write. and work. Um, but it took a long time to figure out the thing that I could use to make money that I didn't feel like was a terrible thing to do. Yes. And, um, it was also really helpful because it uses a completely different part of my brain. Yeah. Um, like it's math. This was a huge lesson for me as well. And it was very similar. Like when I, I, I wasn't thinking about in those terms yet. Um, but I mean, partially I was just, you know, I don't think journalism was the right fit for me. So there was that burnout too. But then also that was a time when I was asking my, my writing to support me Mm -hmm. and I'm still not sure that I ever, I don't know how I feel about that as a concept. I kind of go back and forth. And, um, I mean, I think ultimately probably I feel like it would eventually be great if it, if it could. Like if you're listening to this and you want to offer me like a big advance to finish this novel, I'll send you my contacts. Come, come get her. <laughs> so, but once I realized that this this thing was creatively satisfying, it like let me give myself permission to say this other thing is more financially satisfying, and that's okay. You yeah, know? Whereas, oh, like, totally. Journalism for me is—I mean, it's not 
financially satisfying for anybody <laughs> and like and <laughs> it wasn't especially crea- now and it wasn't yeah. creatively satisfying for me so it's just kind of like okay it's burning everything out yeah and I yeah. think once you find something that works and like I totally get you know I think everybody just kind of has to find their own way like people come on the show who love to teach people who come on the show people come on the show who love to teach but it uses the same muscle as the writing and so they can't do it all the time or they yeah. can't do it at the same time when they've got projects and it's just I think so important to figure out like where your balance where lies. Where your balance is. Yeah. But the thing that you're saying about like the kind of business path and the art path, mm-hmm. and, like, you know, I know it's not quite that binary. And no, you're no, not, no. You're no, not no. saying that yeah. it's binary. Um, that's just kind of a lesson to myself because that's a that's a thing for me is like mm-hmm. putting things in one, you know, for, oh, for category sure. or another. Um, but I find that language is really pervasive in the kind of like internet creative community, which I know even that is like such a huge thing. And mm-hmm. This is a massive generalization, but I think a lot of times the language veers toward kind of creative problem solving and you as a creative problem solver and the product quote unquote that you're Mm -hmm. offering is solving somebody's problem. And that was always tough for me too. Cause I think when I first like, you know, even when I started to do the non, um, non journalism, but non creative stuff or not, you know, non, non art stuff, you know, not, not, not the novel. Um, I, I also struggled with this thing of like making, I tried to make that a business and then Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, this is more investment than I, it's almost, it's like what you were saying with the cafe. You're like, oh, this is, I mean, I could figure out how to solve a problem and be a thing like that for people. But But then that would be your world. But that's your world. And do you want this to be your world? And I think that like one of the big growing up processes, especially for creative people is like figuring out what world you want to be your world. Mm -hmm. And it's trial and error, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that Instagram process and what you got out of that and how it evolved in terms of like, you know, how was it received? Did you, did you have to learn kind of crash course in promoting yourself on social media? Um, no, especially for the first one. Like I, cause I wasn't, my goal was not to, um, succeed. My goal was not to build a brand. My goal was to write and to, to share my writing, um, and to hold myself accountable. I'm really adverse to brand shit. Like, I know that, like, you know, someone could look at me and like, oh, yeah, you have a brand. You're on brand. You're off brand. Blah, blah, blah. Your husband, probably. <laughs> he, even him, he, like, he's not super capitalist, you know? Like, yeah. I think that the thing that makes his business so unique um, is it's more run like a co-op uh-huh. than uh-huh. traditional PR firms. Where, like, a traditional PR firm is like, this is our brand. I, as the leader of the PR firm, are going to choose which clients I take based on how much they can pay and how successful I think they'll be. And then you, publicist, you have these three jobs, and you, publicist, you have these three, and I'm going to take all of the money in, I'm going to pay you a salary, and I'm going to keep a big chunk. Like, that's how most PR firms work. He inherited the business from a lovely woman named Joan LeMay, and she inherited it from someone else whose name I'm completely spaced on because I never met him in person. Um, But... They they all had this same vision of like, no, you're not a hired gun to say that, you know, like this band is amazing. Find bands that you love and work with them. Um, you know, and there's financial parts of it. They obviously have to be able to afford to pay for your work because your work is valuable as a publicist. But um, it, it's made his business and what he does and what his colleagues do 
so much more than just like brand management. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not about like pushing a product for them. It's about helping the artists that they work for accomplish their goals, Mm -hmm. whatever those goals are, whether they're business, whether they're art, helping them reach where they want to go. And it's also so personal with each um, client that they work and each publicist has the people that they love. And what happens with that is like a lot of times um, things work, things don't work. But um, the, the journalist community at this point really knows that when they get an email from Riot Act, the person behind them, the, the email might be a little scrappier than the bigger companies, but they know that this person with this taste loves this band, Mm -hmm. which you can't say for a lot of different publicists. Um, so I don't think about brands, I guess is what I'm going back to. Um, I don't like, I know it's counter what is going on in the world and what people say, but I don't believe in brands. I think that we as individuals and as people are doing the best we can to make what we can in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't go towards a brand. I go towards authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I want to be as honest with my work as I can. I want to be as um, close to the bone as I can. Um, I want to be as universal as I can, only in the, in the way that every specific moment of the human experience is universal. We're all in this together. You know, it's a tumultuous time right now. Um, Fascism is on the rise, Mm -hmm. um, and there's no beating around that bush. But even those people on the other side of this terrifying moment are people. They have lives. They have emotions. They have places that they're coming from. And so in my art and in the stories that I've been posting and in everything that I try to do as an artist, I just try to get as human as I can. Mm -hmm. And if other people want to see a brand in that or want to see a marketing strategy, that's fine. Everyone can, um, can quantify their world however they want to. I'm very open to that. But, um, to get back to your question, when I was posting things, I wasn't thinking about, Mm -hmm. um, marketing myself, especially like the first round, this, the round that became little wonder, um, that was just all on my personal Instagram, Mm -hmm. my personal Facebook page primarily. I don't think I did do Twitter that time because I am bad at Twitter and I couldn't figure it out. And also like I do Twitter now, like now I, um, I have a separate account that's just daily fiction Mm -hmm. and it's far fewer followers than my personal, which is fine. I felt like I was kind of inundating my friends with my work Mm -hmm. and I wanted them to be able to opt in or out. Um, but the um, now I post daily on Instagram and it gets fed over to Facebook. I don't really trust Facebook mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so it just lives there. If you're on Facebook and you want to see my work, it's there. Um, a little wonder book, I think is the tag. And it's a little wonder book on um, Instagram as well. And then on Twitter, it's Little Wonder. I have far fewer followers on there because it's not really like people yeah. aren't doing this. Like yeah. people aren't putting fiction on Twitter. Yeah. The writer, like there are a bunch of writers on Twitter. They like making quips and mm-hmm. talking about things and publicizing their work and other people's works, doing their thing. I don't know how to do that thing. I know how to do that thing that I can do, which is I just want to like share my work. And if people want to like have a moment of a microfiction a day, it's there. 
Um, have you gotten, have people found it who you don't know or? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially now that I'm starting to get some publicity for this book, there've definitely been more followers, um, which is exciting. You know, like, uh, there's someone who, um, actually just interviewed me for his, um, website, pop bullocks, um, who found me like, he was probably the first person I knew who just discovered me, I think. I mean, like, maybe other people have. I don't know. He's the first person who reached out. Um, and it was when my husband was, like, retweeting something. And he was like, oh, she's a really good writer. Um, which was very flattering. And I, I'm i glad that people are finding my work this way. Like, I, I also, like, I don't... It's funny. I make this weird analogy all the time. And you can just plug your ears if you don't know what I'm talking about as far as music goes. But I feel like in a lot of the literary world right now, you are encouraged to either be the Decemberists or Katy Perry. Hmm. And by that, I mean like write for people going to MFA programs or write for the lowest common denominator in the most universal sense. Don't use big words. Don't be intimidating. Um, focus on plot. Mm-hmm. Focus on the hero's or heroine's journey. Do the thing, do the like, this step, this step, this step. Mm-hmm. Um, where with the literary, like the Decemberists, um, it's like, change the writing, change the world of writing. Do things differently or do things in one style or another and like, really like, remake the wheel both sides, by the way, I think are completely valid. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to do either of those things. Um, in my writing, I strive, you know, like, I, w- I guess I do think about audience a little bit. I would say my audience are people who, um, you know, like a precocious teenager. I'd love you to be my audience. Um, someone who studied, you know eight years of college, but maybe not MFA and likes to read, but doesn't want to read something that's like dumb. You're my audience. Like I want to push language. I want to do things differently, but I don't want to reinvent the wheel either. Like I have no interest in not being obtuse. That's a negative word, but I'm not interested in being the Decemberists. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean like no shame. I like the Decemberists. They're good. They, they do what they do. Well, um, I don't want to be Katy Perry. I don't particularly think what she does is good, but yeah. whatever. Like, people do. I get that. Um, I, you know, like, my influences, if we're going in this metaphor of music, have always been stemming from the, like, you know, independent music. And I'm not just saying, like, bands that sound like pavement. Mm-hmm. Um, but bands that were, you know, like, recording on four tracks, recording in their bedroom, like, punk rock shows, you know, twee, mm. all of these different things that just organically came out and aren't the most refined and aren't the most common, um, that are rough around the edges. Like I fucking love rough around the edges in my art, um, in the art that I appreciate. And I think that like posting these stories and they're somewhat raw form because like no story is really completely polished in one day, right? Like, let's be honest. We revise things and revise things and revise and revise. But sharing this raw work, I felt in a lot of ways, was the equivalent of sharing a demo. Mm-hmm. And like, oftentimes, personally, demos are my favorite. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it, it 
you know, you hear the, the lip smacking, you hear the fingers on the strings, and I wanted to bring that to my writing, and it's scary because you're not supposed to as a writer. You're supposed to be one of these two refined, crystalline elements, and I don't want to be that. Um, and I, like, if anything to come out of this book coming out, I hope that I I reach a couple people's ears or a couple people's eyes, or however you want to like say it, and be like, it's okay to just like do what you want to do. And even if you don't get published by some big, like impressive thing, you are bringing your voice into the world. And like your voice is your most powerful instrument with writing. And there's no right or wrong way to get your voice out there. You just have to trust that you are good enough, that your voice is good enough, because it is. Like, allowing yourself to write in your voice is the biggest, like, it's the it's the best thing that you can do, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that's really well put. I, I want to jump on that. Um, how much do the stories that make up Little Wonder look like the Instagram published versions of themselves? Um, varying degrees. Some I, like, I reread them, you know, months later after when I was doing the editorial process, and I'm like, oh, this is good. I'm good with this. And then some of them I, like, completely rewrote. Some of them I just cut completely. Um, I definitely, like, by the time that it reaches the page, I want it to be as as perfect as I can get it to be, um, which is just completely arbitrary and subjective. Um, I would say that most of the stories changed from the original demo to the final draft to varying degrees. Um, I had a couple friends and an old professor of mine and my, my mother who I love dearly was an English professor and she did a lot of very helpful line edits and I'm a terrible speller, like terrible. (laughs) So she helped me along those, those things as well as like the big picture stuff. Um, and you know, like, I definitely, I asked four people, no, five people, I think, um, who I really appreciate their work and I appreciate their thoughts to give me some feedback. Mm -hmm. I didn't hire a professional, um, Mm -hmm. editor, my, uh, publisher didn't either to retain a little bit of the rough edges. Mm -hmm. We didn't want it ironed out completely. Um, but it is less rough than what I posted. Like this new, this new thing that I'm working on, I'm sure that the stories that you read day to day, um, are going to be in far different form if it ever does come out as a published piece of work. Because are you just kind of firing them off in the... I mean, there's always, I know, the um, danger of reading something short and assuming that it was easy to create, but obviously oh. short often takes longer, but, you yeah. know, is part was part of the process for you the fast movement between the draft and the publishing? Sure, yeah. I mean, the instant gratification of likes is amazing. Yeah. Like, any... any um, millennial or social media dopamine oh yeah Yeah. like seeing those hearts come in i'm like give me more Uh, give me more (laughs) um i mean i'd be lying if i said that wasn't true um but the uh yeah so the instant gratification is great um it's also like really hard sometimes Mm -hmm. because i'll get to the end of the day and it'll be 11 30 at night and i'll want to just go to bed and i can't because i didn't write my story yet Um, which happens a lot. Like most days these stories are being like, maybe I'll conceive of them during the day. Maybe I'll get a rough draft in, but the, the hard work is mostly done in bed right before I go to bed. 
um, in the time that I would usually set aside to reading a novel. Um, it probably drives my husband insane. He's probably very excited for this next round to be done. Um, but I am too. I'm exhausted. But I'm happy about it. Like, it is keeping me vigilant, yeah. you know? And it's funny. So Patricia Wheeler, who we talked about before, had this advice um, where, like, you take your chaos and your order, whatever, what, whatever you're creatively working on, whatever chaos you're dealing with, and, you know, like, throughout the month, the first week, you work on the creativity for 10 minutes and the um, chaos for, I think she said 60. 60 every single day. And then like those, that ratio changes mm-hmm. throughout the month. And um, it's like, I'm like obsessing over it now because I'm like, yes, this is, this is a good next step because I love the daily, um, the daily obligation of creativity. I hate it and I love it like yeah. it's terrible yeah. it's the worst thing I've ever done it's the best thing I've ever Correct. done yeah <laughs> um and I like I'm like oh this is a great way to transition because ultimately like I love writing microfiction but I also you know I have this novel that I have mm-hmm. like I have the rough draft and I need to start doing this big thing and it's gonna be really hard for me to let go of those likes mm. um and I need to figure out another way to um to share my writing because I do really appreciate that. And I think it, it's, I've definitely heard from people that it inspires them to do something of their own, um, in that similar fashion. And I, um, I really am pro getting more creativity in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot like, um, I've mentioned a few times, I think on the show, uh, this guy, Austin Cleon, the steal like an artist guy, and he's got this whole concept of show your work. Yeah. Yeah, But you're right. It is much easier for, um, not easier. I mean, I don't, I don't mean it that way. I mean, we, we create something less visually interesting. Yeah. So in a kind of social media sphere, it can be difficult to find the way to what that looks like for us. No, totally. And I think that a lot of times, again, no shame, everyone's on their own path. A lot of times people spend all of their time looking for publications to public, publicate them. That's a word. (laughs) That is totally a word. Um, no, but publish them. Um, And that's great. That's all fine and good. But one of the other things that I really came to with this project is um, the idea of permission. And I got really tired of waiting for permission. Yes. I got really tired of gatekeepers telling me that my work wasn't quite ready. You know? And, like, it just... um, I I think everyone has to come to their own place on that, you know? It'll be interesting to see how your... um how your process evolves when you go back to longer form projects. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I think I want to keep some kind of um, daily ritual of sharing. Yeah. As a part of it, it's probably going to evolve. Um, but I I think that it's important, especially now, like, you know, I work from home. A lot of people work from their computer. And um, community is so much more online now. Mm-hmm. And when you isolate yourself from the social networks, you know, on one hand, it is very freeing, but on the other hand, you isolate yourself. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy the interaction that I get with these daily stories and the community that I feel supporting me and I can support then. Um, so I want to figure out another way to keep sharing daily fiction and it might just be little excerpts Mm -hmm. of whatever I work on that day be it you know like a picture of an outline or you know like talking about the process Mm -hmm. I'm cool with doing that kind of Mm -hmm. thing um I I really I wish 
I wish more people would do that, honestly. Like, I would love to be able to go to one of my favorite authors, um, you know, like Twitter handle and just read a new paragraph that mm-hmm. they're working on. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I, I love, I, um, I, I like oversharing, I guess. <laughs> well, that sounds like a really good note to start to wrap up on. Um, you probably know, but um, I always give this the same little spiel. This is the question I ask everybody at the end of our conversations, um, which is what does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? <sighs> um, creative satisfaction. I like that question a lot. Um, creative satisfaction to me is reading something I've written, or in this case, because I've been practicing a lot to do oral readings, hearing something I've written, and being like, yeah, I got it. That's good. Like, that's my set. That's why I write. Like, um, all the other stuff is great and good, but the real reason I write is when I get like, and it's usually like a sentence, and I'm like, that, I got it. I got what I was trying to say. Um, that's creative satisfaction for me. It's like the perfect sentence. Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and the theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.